This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condis Presley. Our guest today is scholar, public intellectual, professor, distinguished writer, Michael Eric Dyson. His book is What Truth Sounds Like. Robert F. Kennedy, James Baldwin, and our unfinished conversation about race in America. And Professor, before we begin that unfinished conversation, I have two words for you. North Korea, your reaction to the breaking news this week. So when Obama said as he was running for president that he would not only talk to the friends of America, but the enemies, he was roundly lambasted. Fox News carried on a verbal tirade, a rhetorical fusillade against him, just arguing about his essential un-Americanness and how naive he was and how he would put America in harm's way. And now up pumps, up pops Donald Trump to meet with a dictatorial figure whose, uh, you know, human rights violations uh, were not checked. In fact, there was no, a deal was cut without the details uh, announced. The details would be forthcoming, TBA, to be announced. So what did you agree to? What did you shake your hand with? What what did you understand him to be saying? So while in the ideal world, we should speak to all and anybody, we should be willing to engage across aisles of difference. It is striking to me that Donald Trump can go half way around the world to meet with a invalorous and uh, dictatorial figure like Kim Jong-un, and he can't engage African-American people, can't talk to highly intelligent black people here who may disagree with him, who have something to offer about the future of this nation, not only in regard to race, but in regard to uh, general practices of American democracy. So even though he's taking a victory lap and he's being celebrated, I think that in the offing, these uh, conflicting and contradictory elements suggest it's not as clean and clear as others would like it to be. Okay, so I got two more words for you. Dennis Rodman. (laughs) Well, he did arrive there ahead of the uh, negotiations, as the British might say. Um, They love basketball. They love Dennis Rodman. I mean, shuttle diplomacy is one thing. Uh, Basketball diplomacy, cultural diplomacy may, uh, in an ideal world, help. But what in the world does Donald uh, does uh, Dennis Rodman have? What insight does he have? Does he merely provide cover for a government that will pay his um, expenses and therefore treat him as a pinata or, you know, a, a figure who is a mascot uh, for their particular way of life and who doesn't really get at the heart of the matter? Now, you know, some could argue that Donald, that, uh, that Dennis Rodman paved the way for Donald Trump to go there, that it made no sense until a figure like uh, Dennis Rodman took a basketball team there uh, and began to soften uh, the, the, the resistance and open the barriers that prevented uh, us from sitting down. But we're sitting down with a person who hasn't promised us anything in terms of changing uh, human rights practices, nor, you know, altering uh, the nuclear landscape with, uh, you know, identifiable and evidence based claims and promises that we can take a look at, that we can that we can uh, evaluate based upon what we know and what we read. Again, Donald Trump said, hey, 
uh, I'll know in my gut, basically. I'll know it's the, my feeling. I don't have to prepare. I don't have to know uh, sane policy. I don't have to know nuclear policy. All I have to do is is feel my way uh, toward a deal. We are in trouble as a nation, and this is a troubling aspect of that uh, leadership that Donald Trump has provided. And Professor Dyson, now your book, What Truth Sounds Like, RFK, James Baldwin, and our unfinished conversation about race in America. You wrote this book because you didn't know enough about this story? Wrote a book about it because I had often heard about this story, um, this famous meeting, infamous perhaps even between Bobby Kennedy, uh, the Attorney General of the United States of America, and James Baldwin. And not only Baldwin, but some of his friends, uh, Lena Horne, uh, Lorraine Hansberry, and Harry Belafonte, and the great Kenneth Clark, uh, the great uh, public intellectual and social psychologist whose uh, dial experiments helped transform American public education through Brown versus Board of Education decision from the Supreme Court in 1954. So all those folk were there, and I wanted to know, my God, what happened? What was said? What was the consequence of that meeting? And how do we think about it in relationship to today? So I wrote a book that answers all those questions. And your point, because um, I have one chapter that deals with activists who happen to be athletes like Muhammad Ali and Colin Kaepernick and LeBron James. And, you know, think about figures like, of course, Venus and Serena Williams and, and others. But, you know, here's a guy who can't even sit down with these ball players to speak to them, to talk to them, to hear their, you know, complaints, to hear their grievances. Uh, Michael Bennett, Malcolm Jenkins, uh, Colin Kaepernick are professional uh, football players who are arguing, arguing that the disproportionate concentration of black people in prison and in jail, the ways in which black people are mistreated by the police, uh, and the shooting of unarmed black people has to stop. And they must use their platforms uh, to express their views and to create broader awareness about the problems we confront. And yet they are seen as un-American, anti-patriotic figures. And Donald Trump can sit down with Kim Jong-un uh, and at the behest of uh, Dennis Rodman, uh, perhaps brokering a deal and... Um, you know, all is well and everything seems fine. And yet these fine, valorous Americans are mistreated, are seen as by Mr. Trump and those of his ilk as anti-patriotic, uh, ungrateful black men who make millions of dollars uh, and who should be quiet and perform their duties on the gridiron and continue to make big money while uh, hushing themselves in the face of enormous disparities between the in the treatment of black and uh, white people in America, but also because of the un injustice to which the masses of black people are, tr uh, are subject. Many African-Americans thought race relations would improve during the Obama years, and now in the Trump administration, it's not a priority at all. Not a priority, not a conversation, not an inclination. Although race is being discussed, just not explicitly. Or race is being talked about when... You know, the president calls the, the majority black players in the NFL sons of bitches. Race is being spoken about when the president says they're good people on both sides, those who are bigots and those who are against bigotry. Race is being talked about when uh, the president disinvites uh, the Philadelphia Eagles from uh, the White House celebration of their Super Bowl 
and certainly the race is uh, being invo- invoked when he invite disinvites preemptively um, the Golden State Warriors uh, from coming to the White House because he knows that they have been critical of his uh, notorious uh, racism and his uh, notorious bigotry. So, yeah, race is being talked about, just not in conversations that are helpful, uplifting, edifying, insightful, informed by fact and deed, and shaped by a common desire to overcome the racial animus that continues to becloud this nation. So there's no question that uh, Donald Trump ain't leading no serious and engaged discussion in an enlightening fashion about what's happening in this nation. No. And the tragedy is, is that Obama was forced to do it when he did so. Um, You know, my Bible tells me if you kick a demon out and you don't put anything in its place, seven words will come inhabit that space. And I think in many ways, Obama's refusal to talk about race except when forced to created a vacuum and a void. And Donald Trump has been all too willing to to fill that void, uh, but not the way we think may be helpful and instructive in a positive way but in fashions that are wholly uh, problematic and that don't play to the best angels of our nature. How did these protests, these demonstrations by started by Colin Kaepernick of taking a knee when he was on the 49ers football team mm-hmm. and others followed suit when he stopped or was told to stop playing the game? Mm-hmm. How did this debate discussion about the plight of black men and black people in America and how they are being treated by the authorities turn into a debate or a discussion about not respecting the American flag. Well, this is a perfect example of the mendacity of this president, of the cynical character of, um, you know, his presidency that he would turn an argument about unarmed black people being unfairly and unjustly killed by police people about rising rates of police brutality, about targeting black people in the criminal justice system in ways that are fundamentally unfair to turn that necessary, vital conversation into a referendum on their character and patriotism, whether or not they are truly committed to American society. Uh, and, And this happened because Donald Trump is deeply and profoundly willful in rejecting the truth. And he talks about fake news, but he is the greatest purveyor of it. He talks about living in an era where we are not uh, uh, dealing with the facts, but alternative facts, as some of his uh, administration said. Uh, Was it Kellyanne Conway? Um, My God. And so they have generated alternative facts in an alternative universe of perception where black people are not seen as equal citizens, where this man has committed such heinous racial acts uh, demonizing the Central Park Five, and when it was proved that by DNA and other um, factors that they indeed were not involved, he still called for them uh, to be viciously mistreated. Um, and, you know, when he took out a full-page ad in the New York Times to parrot his views, he didn't with, re- retract uh, those views the moment it was discovered that these young men were not guilty. So here's a a president who has been determined in his deliberate ignorance and his refusal to acknowledge uh, his own error and to acknowledge that he doesn't know what he's talking about when it comes to race. This refusal to do so has led us to the position we're in today. 
So let's take the story that you've explained to all of us from mm-hmm. 1963 when then-Attorney General Robert Kennedy sat down with key African-American thought leaders. If you, as a key African-American thought leader in 2018, could take an invite into the Oval Office mm-hmm. to sit and have a conversation with the president, right? who would you take with you and what would you want the president to understand? Wow, Malcolm Jenkins and Michael Bennett from the Philadelphia Eagles – Jesse Williams, uh, the entertainer, uh, Angela Rye, uh, the social commentator and cultural commentator. Um, You know, I take uh, some, you know, perhaps uh, Venus or Serena Williams uh, to that conversation, you know, and then I take, um, you know, uh, you know, highly literate uh, thinkers, you know, every everybody. Um, from Khalil Gibran Muhammad to Mark Lamont Hill to James Braxton Peterson to Salome Shatillet to uh, Farrah Jasmine Griffin and uh, Griffin and uh, Aubrey Hendricks. I would take those kind of figures up into the White House with me. People to think critically and honestly and open-mindedly um, about the, 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 the forces of race that we confront. Uh, people on the front line like those athletes, uh, Bennett and Jenkins, who have been thinking critically about this issue and who have something solid to offer and say, Um, and some intellectuals who have been thinking about this matter for a long time, entertainers like Mr. Williams um, and uh, others who, you know, Gabrielle Union, uh, who has been grappling with this, Yara Shahidi um, of Blackish, you know, who's been thinking about these issues and talking about them for quite some time. Those are the kinds of figures in this generation who continue to inspire us uh, to uh, to open our minds and to uh, be more suspicious of the things that we are force fed. And believe it or not, I just had a recent conversation with Harry Belafonte in public in New York to open my book tour. He's 91 years old mm. and he's still feisty, still extremely handsome. All the women in the room loved him, still. <laughs> but still saying things that are important, intelligent, and uh, critical in the most, uh, you know, uh, helpful uh, fashion possible. So these, just, these are just a few of the people that I would invite to that room. And some ministers like Frederick Douglass Haynes uh, or Howard John Wesley or Carolyn Knight, um, you know, and many, many others. Um, um, you know, to to really sit there with this president and, uh, you know, talk to him about the plight and predicament of black people uh, in America and to do so uh, with the intent uh, not simply to excoriate him and to lambast him, but to honestly speak about uh, the racial condition, the plight and predicament of black and poor and brown and other people in this country and to figure out how we can address it most helpfully without exacerbating the tensions uh, in the the bigoted ways he has done since he's uh, occupied the office of the presidency uh, in this nation. Our guest is Michael Eric Dyson, one of America's premier public intellectuals. He is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Tears We Cannot Stop. His new book is What Truth Sounds Like, Robert F. Kennedy, James Baldwin, and our unfinished conversation about race in America. Professor Dyson, you as well as I know that this president has a core base of support 
in the mm-hmm. United States of America mm-hmm. who will see and hear the things that you've said during this conversation and disagree with you 100 percent, who will say that the summit in Singapore was a 100 (laughs) percent success and that the president is doing as he promised, making America great again. Why is it, in your opinion, that this president's base is not interested in having a discussion about a real substantive discussion, let's say, about race relations in America? Yeah, well, that base will uh, applaud him, will uh, celebrate him, will proclaim him uh, without any sense of contradiction or hypocrisy. The same people who doubted Obama's uh, legitimacy and validity that when Obama even spoke hypothetically about sitting down with a figure like a Kim Jong uh, Kim Jong Un, uh, that it was uh, horrible, it was despicable, it was naive, it was ridiculous, and that it should not occur. And now that this president has done so, he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. But I think that um, part of the problem has been that we have never really challenged white brothers and sisters to think beyond the narrow parameters of their whiteness, you know, white privilege. And a lot of white people are resentful of that term. I don't have any white privilege. I'm not as rich as you. I, you know, I struggle for a living like anybody else. And that may be true, but when there was Jim Crow in this nation, it didn't mean that every white person would thrive. It meant that the people who would likely thrive were white. When Jim Crow prevailed, it didn't mean that every white person could get into Harvard. It meant that the only people who were going to Harvard were white. So there was a pre-selection going on. There was a narrowing of the funnel of opportunity that poured into the lives of those who were white, but not black or brown in this country. So many of them are unconscious of their privileges and advantages and benefits that they've accumulated over the years. And when they hear black people talking about the need to address these issues in a systematic uh, fashion, they are often resentful, thinking that black people are ginning up racial uh, division, fomenting uh, racial antipathy and harsh uh, race relations in the country. And nothing could be further from the truth. But it's easy to manipulate the, the Trump voter uh, in that fashion because they have a pre-existing condition of resentment of blackness to begin with. And they've been taught and encouraged um, to be very skeptical of, uh, quote, black rights and the, the way in which the quest for black rights has hampered their pursuit, uh, they feel, of opportunity. And they have to, through affirmative action, defer to you know, black and brown people and women, that they have to step aside and not um, take full advantage of all the opportunities that come their way because some of those uh, should go to people of color in this nation. So when you put all that stuff together, they're much more vulnerable to be manipulated and misled by this president uh, when it comes to dealing with issues of race in America. What do you want readers to take away from this book, What Truth Sounds Like? Well, I want them to see that I spent a lot of time trying to get the story right, that I tried to be eloquent in my telling of the story, that I tried to approach the story by looking at what are the relationships between then and now, and uh, to often understand and to also understand that uh, it's it's always an ongoing issue that the things we're grappling with in night in uh, 2018 we were grappling with in 2000 in, in 1968 we were even grappling with in 1963 some 55 odd years before so this is an ongoing battle we must continue to wage war against racial ignorance and racial intolerance 
and we must insist that the nation find the right groove uh, to explore the better angels of its nature and to come to a better understanding of this uh, society as being fit and just for all people. And we've got to learn to share this world with so many more people than we've ever been told we have to. So we can read the book and we can know more. Absolutely. Should people be inspired to take action, what would you have them do? Absolutely. In my book, Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon of White America, I talked about the, some of the things that white folk could do. You know, uh, give out individual reparations accounts, hire black people when ordinarily they wouldn't, uh, figure out ways to funnel resources to poor people of color uh, in ways that are helpful to them. So, you know, yeah, that there are many practical things that can be done. First of all, for white people to call out white privilege, to acknowledge it exists would be huge. And for other white people to call other white people to account and to hold them uh, accountable for some of the things that they have done. If we see that going on, uh, that would be a tremendous sign of progress in this country. Well, the way that lady stepped up at Starbucks in Philadelphia. That's exactly right. I met her this past weekend and she stepped up. She took that film and she said, nope, not on my watch. I'm not going to be complicit in this kind of racial tyranny. And I'm going to let the world know what I saw here in Starbucks in Philadelphia. Last question, Professor Dyson. Do you fear that the conversation doesn't happen and the, the cause is hurt because the way many people experience people of color is through our media, on the news, and not always in the best light? I mean, yes, that's, that's a real liability. And let's be honest, it's interesting to watch the news media in the age of Trump really take it on the chin and be very much conscious of that and Defensive, their, uh, defensive of their position and the fourth estate and how they should safeguard democracy. Well, y'all the same people. Fake news didn't begin with Donald Trump. There was a lot of fake news about black people being perpetuated. If it leads, it breeds. I mean, if it uh, bleeds, it leads in Philadelphia on local news and became a mantra and a watchword uh, across the nation. Carnage in black communities especially got played on the local news at, at 6 o'clock and, and later. Um and the misportrayal of black people uh, as savages and beasts and, and all of these, this jumble of stereotypes that really attacked uh, the integrity of black identity and, and didn't acknowledge the diversity of who we are. So, yeah, that media really has to, you know, acknowledge its own complicity in the very forces that it now wants to resist. And we didn't even talk about Roseanne. I mean, Roseanne, bless her heart, she doesn't know if she wants to be prejudiced and a bigot or if she just wants to apologize or if she wants to apologize and then throw more people under the bus or if she's mad at her co-workers who called her on her defenseless prejudice and bigotry or, you know, it's just the right, it's just the left wing trying to exploit, you know, uh, her own flaw and her mistake and portray it as something that is deeply rooted, which I believe it is, in American society. So, yeah, uh, there's no question that Roseanne uh, emblematizes, you know, uh, how race often happens, you know, in America, that things can be said off the top of the head. It's the accumulated belief about black people that rolls easily to the tongue, and then a quick apology will try to dismiss the validity of what was said, the the genuine character of what was said, that, that somebody really meant what they said, and had they not been caught or clocked, they would have stood by it. Uh, that's the scary thing, and we've got to continue to fight the fight 
and you know figures like Roseanne, you know, made made a horrible statement. It's not that people shouldn't be forgiven. Black people have often forgiven people even before they came to trial. But she initially seemed to seek that uh, forgiveness, but then very quickly it became apparent that. Um, you know, she was no longer interested in that uh, forgiveness and that she bought what some of her followers said about this being politically correct and that people shouldn't be forced uh, to not speak honestly and openly and truthfully about race in America. The book is What Truth Sounds Like, Robert F. Kennedy, James Baldwin, and our unfinished conversation about race in America. It's a great book, folks. The author is the good reverend, the professor, Dr. Michael Eric Dyson. It's always a pleasure to see you. Hope to see you in Detroit later this summer. Look forward to it. Take good care. Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, my handle is Condo29 on Twitter, or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.